so the goal of Divi and really what I think the American dream is, is you want to build up a nest egg for your family. You want them to go to good school. You want them to get a good education. You want them to provide a better life for their children than you were able to provide for them. And a lot of this, the foundation of this, starts with building up a nest egg, which comes from building it up in an asset. Hi, I'm Des. And I'm Theo. And welcome to Hustle and Innovate, a show about leaders, creators, and innovators in business, tech, and everything in between. We started this podcast because we wanted to showcase people in the journey, not the beginning, not the end, right in the middle. This podcast will feature guests from a wide range of backgrounds, perspectives, and industries. We hope these interviews will help you find strategies and inspiration to keep hustling and keep innovating in whatever you do in life. Let's get it. All right, everyone. Welcome back to the show. Today, we've got Adina Heffitz. Adina, thank you so much for joining us. We're excited to have you. Thank you for having me, Des. Excited to be here. Cool. So, Adina, you've got a great background, grew up in Long Island, went to Cornell, were mutual alumni of that school up in Ithaca. You have worked across fintech and financial services for the entirety of your career, Goldman, Square, BAML, I believe DFJ and TPG as well. And now you're the CEO and leader of Divi Homes, doing some amazing things on making home ownership more affordable for people like me and people writ large throughout the country, which I love. So would love to kind of just start the pod and get a little bit more context on yourself and how you came to start Divi. Sure. Well, first of all, Des, I don't know that you're our core customer base. You live in New York City, worked (laughs) in sales and trading, went to an Ivy League school. It's probably a little different. We serve pretty much the average American. Most of our customers live in tier two markets. Most are making on average somewhere around $75,000 to $125,000 a year and generally ages 25 to 45 years old. So I'll give you a little bit of background on how we were founded and started and then can dive into any specific questions. So founded Divi about four and a half years ago and the idea behind it was really to make homeownership more accessible So what I saw was that basically pre-global financial crisis, mortgages were given out pretty readily. And as a result of that, we obviously led to the global financial crisis or GFC. The pendulum swung really hard in the other direction at that point where mortgage underwriting seriously tightened. And it just meant that people who previously would have been able to buy a starter home, send their kids to a good school district were no longer able to do so. And you'll just wake up one morning being like, oh, you know, it turns out I don't want to actually ever be a homeowner. I think that that's just sort of the natural progression in life. And so I started thinking, is there a way to actually create a product where we provide them with the utility of owning a home and then help them actually access it over time? And so founded Divi to do that. And then I can go into the way we work if that's helpful. Yeah, that would be amazing. Awesome. Okay. So folks come to our website. There's a little yellow button on the top right that says sign up. We put you through a really quick free application. We run a soft credit check, so there's no impact on your credit score or anything like that. And we basically, from there, quickly assess you and give you a budget to go out home shopping. So we'll say, Des, you're approved for home shopping for a $450,000 home in, I don't know, Dallas, Texas. And then you go out shopping with your realtor. You find the home you want. We put down an all-cash quick-close offer for you. I think this is a really important nuanced point, which is 
Today, we give the individual consumer the ability to compete with institutional buyers, which is Divi is representing you. We are partnering with you. We are making you as competitive as any other cash offer that's out there. We put the offer down on the home for you. You sign a lease with the option to purchase, commit anywhere from 1% to 2% of the home value and savings. That's your money, 1% to 2%. It is not a fee. It is your savings. You get it back if you leave the house. And then ultimately, you build up equity in the property. It's part rent, part equity is the payment. And then that builds up to anywhere from 5 to 10% over the course of three years. At any point in time, you can roll all of that savings, including that down payment, onto a mortgage. Yeah. You can also cash out and leave if you want to, and we just take a small relisting fee. So one point I do want to kind of expand on there that you talked about is you're helping the regular American compete with institutional buyers, specifically within single-family homes. There's a ton of interest given this search from yield where people are multifamily, given the pandemic, been at all-time occupancy. Office has obviously been affected as well. Hospitality, there's probably also been a fight to quality. So could you maybe expand on that so people have a better understanding of what it means when you're competing with an institutional buyer? Sure. So today, I think in the markets we operate, I think close to 30% of all offers that get accepted on homes are from what's called an institution. Now, it's hard to say who's an actual institution, but the way that the government records it is anyone who is not living at the address of which they purchased the home. So that's the quick heuristic that they tend to use. And what's different is typically these institutional buyers, they do something called paying all cash, which means that they don't have an appraisal contingency. There's no financing. They will just pay the cash at the time of closing. Now, why do sellers like this so much? Well, because when you have a mortgage in the closing process, some sort of financing, FHA, Fannie Mae, VA, whatever type of loan you're getting, it introduces a third party, which introduces risk. Meaning now not only do you and the seller have to agree on the price, you now have to run an appraisal and the mortgage provider needs to agree on the price that you guys just settled on, right? And so that adds complication and risk to the transaction. And so in order to remove that risk, the seller often just goes with all cash offers. So what we are seeing in most markets today is that it is extremely hard to win if you don't have an all cash offer. And so for the average person, unless they've saved up in cash the value of the home, it's very challenging to actually be able to win a bid. Right, right. And I I think, you know, this is part of what, unfortunately, Theo, my co-host is not here today, but this is part of what Theo and I wanted to explore is this changing concept of the American dream, where for me personally, when I grew up, you know, thinking about the American dream, a lot of it did have to do with home ownership, quite frankly, you know, home ownership in the suburbs, having access to great schools, great parks, etc. And being able to frankly, give your children a life that is most likely better than the one you were able to grow up and and pursue. And I really just want to quickly read a quote, and then I'll ask a question in terms of what the American dream means to you and how has it changed over time. But this was my perspective. So the American dream, as it was described to me, always felt like it was about progress, pursuit, and achieving a degree of freedom in one's life that allowed them to live comfortably with respect and dignity. To me, Today, the American dream is unequivocally about ownership. It is about owning productive assets that allow you to live your life on your terms, on your time, as you see fit. Clearly, there is an aspect where you are on that latter definition of the American dream because you're running a Series C-backed company, you are a founder, you are building ownership in a productive asset, and at the same time, you're equipping what I'll call, again, the average American with a bazooka to compete with institutional buyers that are not only viewing this 
dream home for someone where it's you're going to wrap it in emotions, memories, et cetera, but they're viewing it as a productive asset. So I know I wrapped a bunch in there, but I'd say the the question that I have for you is is succinctly, what does the American dream mean to you and how has it changed over time? Yeah. So I'd say me personally, a lot of the foundation for building Divi came from my own experience. So my parents... They got married, they were pregnant, they were living in a little studio apartment, and they went out to try to buy a house, the first house, so that they can have their kid in a good school district, all of that stuff, and they could not get approved for mortgage. And they found ultimately a lovely woman who's willing to give them seller financing, and that is how they purchased a home where they then had my sister, three more kids, of which I was the third, three out of four, and then they were able to eventually get a mortgage and put a mortgage against that house, take out cash. And every time one of us went to college, they refinanced that property and took more cash out and paid for our education. My dad didn't go to college. My family had never gone to an Ivy League school, nothing, right? And this to them was the American dream, was having me and using the money from that home to be able to send me to go get an education to better my life for myself and also help support my broader family. And I think that so much of the American dream is getting swept away and is a lot of what I see in building Divi. If you have worked a nine-to-five job over the last decade, you haven't seen your wages grow almost at all, you've seen inflation take off, and you've seen the basic things that you want in life start to escape your grasp. Groceries, buying a home, the cost of a car, all of these things are now way out of reach. And the only way you could possibly afford them is if you had invested in an asset. If you had built up equity in a house, if you invest in the stock market, if you had put your money into Bitcoin, something, right? Asset inflation has taken off, income inflation has not. And this has created a massive divide in our country. And so the goal of Divi and really what I think the American dream is, is you want to build up a nest egg for your family. You want them to go to good school. You want them to get a good education. You want them to provide a better life for their children than you were able to provide for them. And a lot of this, the foundation of this starts with building up a nest egg, which comes from building it up in an asset. And for better, for worse, I think that most folks who are middle class, middle income, investing in something like the S&P 500 seems pretty far out of reach. Whereas investing in a house, one, it's a tangible asset. Two, it's hard to take money out and it compounds over time. Three, it has dual utility. You can live in it. It compounds while you live in it. You can't live in the S&P 500, (laughs) right? I wish. Yes. And so I think that investing in a home build so much wealth for families over time and really help solidify that American dream. And I know it it certainly did for my family. So how much do you view risk as a barrier to developing wealth? Because a lot of what I think people and what, what I think people need to understand, and I think what Theo and I are trying to kind of put out into the world is that to your point, you need to put money to work. You need to have money flowing into an asset that is going to return money back to you at at some point. But also at the same time, you know, being able to save up $50,000 for a home is a lot. I'm in the process of doing it right now. And I'm like, "Ah, how how am I going to do this? But I'm aware of the fact that, you know, given my age, given my demographic, given where I work, it's in my, quite frankly, in my benefit at this time period to take on, in my opinion, as much risk that I can possibly bear without having to go into like, you know, being overextended and being margin called, et cetera, extending on credit that I can't afford. But yeah, so succinctly, you know, how do you well, risk well, as a factor? Kind of the, I want to push on this, right? How old are you, Des? 
I am 27, 28 in December. And are you married? I am not. Do you have children? I do not. Okay. You're not the average American, right? The average American at your age is married and has started to have children. And the risk profile of what they need to do is very different than the risk profile of you. So yes, if you have worked a job and have a ton of savings and want to take risk and invest in assets like Bitcoin, go for it. I would say for the average person who gets married, who has children, and by the way, go through that math in your head. The average salary in America is $60,000, dollars $60,000. How much is the average children? $15,000 a kid per year. Two kids, that's $30,000. Post-tax, you are living off of almost nothing, right? The math just doesn't work out super well. And so when you start to talk about savings and taking risks, I think savings are super important for everyone. I don't care. You're the top 10 percentile, you're the bottom 10 percentile. Like figuring out a way to save is super important. The question is how much risk you take in those savings. And I would argue that for some folks, taking extreme risk in how they invest is probably not the right call. And maybe less risk in terms of asset class is probably the right call. And that is the reason also why I think that this is one of the better investments to make is in a house. Risk-adjusted returns for housing are the best out of any asset classes. Would you say that, in your opinion, that the best asset still to achieve the American dream is owning a home in this country? 100%, I think. I mean, risk-adjusted returns, home prices, or owning a home is the best asset class. You can't get this sort of leverage against anything, right? In general, look, we live through 09, and so I think in our heads we have that homes depreciate over time. In general, you hold a home long enough, it appreciates, right? Mm -hmm. And the beta isn't tremendous. It moves. It's less liquid market. It doesn't move as quickly as something like the stock market moves, right? And so, like, I'm not discouraging people from investing in the stock market or in other asset classes. I think if you have that risk tolerance, you don't have children, you're still young, go for it. I think that that's the right thing to do. However, I think that the profile of the average American ages 25 to 45 who has $5,000 saved up, has two children and is living somewhat paycheck to paycheck, place you want to save is in an asset that is extremely stable, which is housing. So let's zoom out for a second. And let's say Adina's three tips or tips and tricks to achieving the American dream. One, it seems like is being able to own a home in this country. What would be your opinion on the the next two? I think there's actually been studies that have been done on this, and they say the first thing is graduate high school. Graduate high school. Do not have a child until you are married. Why? Because dual income helps support the fixed cost of children, right? If you're paying for one kid and you're a solo earner versus you're paying for one kid and you have two earners, right? The financial profile is different. Three, own a home. So education wait until you can afford to have children essentially or figure out right when that right time in your life when you have stable income is and then three own a home and invest in a home and that would be to me the biggest three things you can do to pull yourself from being somewhere around call it the 30th to 50th percentile in income to above the 50th percentile and isn't there an exacerbated challenge or, or structural problem there as well where you're quality of your education is also linked to the value of your home. It's it's something that I didn't fully appreciate and understand until I got older, where it's like, hey, the reason why I went to a nice school is because it was funded by tax dollars in my state or in my, actually in my town, because I, I lived in Texas. And so, yeah. you know, it feels like unless there will still be people who are starting behind the start line, 
depending on where they live because a function of the quality of their education is related to the cost of the homes in the area. And people are going to probably choose to live in the area that they can best afford. Yeah, and, by, and by the way, Des, the majority of folks who can't get a mortgage end up renting. The majority of rental properties are in lower quality school district areas. And so I think what I was so focused on in building Divi, which it goes back to, is we approve someone for a budget. They pick out any home they want. It is a for sale home and you get it in the school district that you need or as close to your job as you need or in the right location that you need. And this was so important to me because I went and I looked at rental inventory. It's not great, right? And so, so much of this is not only putting someone into a Divi home to save, but letting them pick out the home they want in the school district they want in the area that they want their kids to grow up in and be able to have them build savings in a way that ultimately has this ripple and compound effect of allowing their kids to access the education that they want and allowing them to be in a community that supports them. So that's a lot of the foundation for it. But I agree, it's a complete flywheel, right? Which is, you can't get the house you need, or you can't afford a mortgage to get the house, you end up renting, you end up renting, you tend to send your kids to a different school district or a lower grade school district, right? Which then ends up putting them on a flywheel and cycle. And part of it is how you break this cycle. And I'm not saying Divi is perfect in doing so. In but fact, what, I think we have a lot to do, but I think we're attempting to help break it. So early stages, what would you say you all are facilitating? How are you guys helping the American dream? Because there's a lot of companies and businesses that, you know, quite frankly, aren't. I don't need another direct-to-consumer XYZ, even though I do click those ads. <laughs> yeah. So look, we help customers save. We let them pick out a home. We have them put a really small down payment. So our average down payment would be somewhere around, call it two to $4,000, which is a pretty reasonable amount, I think, for the average individual to have to save up. And then we force them to save and we force them to save in their home and we give them the benefit of the appreciation. So when they invest their 1% and their 1%, the home is appreciated 20%, they made a 20% return on the money that they've invested in Dippy. And so we give them the benefit of savings and we give them the benefit of compound interest. And again, they get to pick out the home that they want. So Look, I, I think that we do our best to support our customers in being on the right path towards homeownership and knowing that it's not easy, right? It's not easy to kind of force yourself to save up the $50,000 that you're trying to save right now for down payment. However, if you can build that slowly over time, if you can move into the home today, send your kids to a good school district and know that the down payment comes over time, that we put people ultimately on a better path. And so one, love that. I think in the, the last kind of part of the the show will transition to kind of getting your perspective on advice for other founders. I talk to founders every day, every week. So the first question that I have for you is, I always tell founders, like what I respect most is that you all are on the field and you're taking a massive swing. So talking to other founders out there today, what do you think would be the best advice for them when they're stepping up to the plate and getting ready to hit a home run, grand slam, whatever you want to call it? Yeah. So a couple of things. One, Find yourself with an amazing co-founder. This is a long, hard journey. And my co-founder, Nick, he's our CTO, has made this journey so much more enjoyable and has been my rock through it all. We support each other and it's awesome. So find yourself an awesome co-founder. I'd say two, find yourself really good backers and investors early. People who will stand by you when you start a company. No one knows who Dina Heffitz is. I had no name, brand, or reputation. So I aligned myself with someone who did have a name and a brand and reputation. So we incubated Divi, Max Levchin's startup studio. Max Levchin was one of the co-founders at PayPal. And he was able to help us make sure that we closed our first couple of rounds of capital. So find that person that can help you actually get to those first you know, initial steps in building the company. Third, 
realize it's not as much risk as you think it is. There's a very large difference between personal risk and company risk. Companies may fail. That does not mean that it's not going to be an amazing experience for you or that you can leverage that experience to go further in life. So I would just say it's hard, it's tough, but realize that it might not be as risky as you think it is in terms of your own personal career. I think people respect others who have taken shots. And so it might mean that the company doesn't survive, right? <laughs> Who knows? That's like a hard thing to build a massive company, but it does mean that I think you'll have more respect in terms of your skill set and abilities for the next job that you look and, look for, and if yeah. it doesn't work. Yeah, and it is extremely hard to build a massive company, and I'm quite frankly learning as I go along the way and supporting founders at earlier stages relative to you. And I really love that last point in terms of it's not as much risk as you think, which I think should be trumpeted from the rooftops. Another question, and I play a role in this, but could you help early stage founders better understand what it is truly like to raise venture capital? Because I think, and I was victim to this, or I don't want to say victim, but I was someone who fell into the camp of, I did not realize how much of a process it is to raise institutional capital until I was on the other side of it and being one of the people who is assessing and meeting and, and chatting with these founders all day. I know it's not easy. I know it can be emotional and challenging. So would really love your candor and context on what that is like. So people understand when they're ready to take a swing, how to be best prepared for that specific process. Yeah. So I think that you kind of hit the nail on the head, which is it is a process. Like anything else in life, there's a formula, there's a way to do it. And there are founders before you who have figured it out. So I would say when you're getting ready to raise venture funds, go talk to a founder who has done it and has done it successfully. I wouldn't walk into like a basketball game and like pick up the basketball and start playing it for the first time without like having spoken to someone or practice or gone and talked to someone who is actually quite good, right? Do not step up to the plate <laughs> for like your fraud raise without having spoken to someone who could be your coach and help you through it or have done practice rounds, Right. It's anything in life. It takes a little bit of just working hard at it and then you get good at it. And it's not an impossible task. It's just there's a, a way to do it and a way mm -hmm. to do it well. So figure out what that is. Speak to people who have been successful. And I think that that's the best advice I have for capital raising. Fantastic. And last question, we'll sneak it in. There's this idea in Silicon Valley and, and venture capital about ta having talent density. What are some strategies you've used to attract and retain talent? At Divi. I think people recognize good people. I think I'm upfront with our employees. I onboard every single on the first meeting every one of our employees has when they come to Divi. I'm direct, I'm transparent, and I'm honest. That's yeah. it. Find good people, work with good people. And I think that smart, kind, caring, good people look for that in their colleagues. And so I think it when you ask me what I've done, I'm like, I treat people really how I would want to be treated. Thank you.